Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A quarter of a century after her memoir, Thinking in Pictures, changed how the world understood autism, Temple Grandin, the anthropologist on Mars, as Oliver Sacks dubbed her, transforms our awareness of the different ways our brains are wired. Do you have a keen sense of direction, a love of puzzles, the ability to assemble furniture without crying? You're likely a visual thinker. In her new book, Visual Thinking, Grandin draws on cutting-edge research to take us inside visual thinking. She says visual thinkers constitute a far greater proportion of the population than previously believed. She also says a world increasingly geared to the verbal tends to sideline visual thinkers, screening them out of school, uh, out of school rather, and passing them over in the workplace. And rather than continuing to waste their singular gifts, driving a collective loss in productivity and innovation, Grandin proposes new approaches to educating, parenting, employing, collaborating with visual thinkers. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, the author of the New York Times bestsellers Animals in Translation, Animals Make Us Human, The Autistic Brain, and Thinking in Pictures, which became an HBO movie starring Claire Danes. Dr. Grandin has been a pioneer in improving the welfare of farm animals, as well as an outspoken advocate for the autism community. This past Saturday, I spoke with uh, Dr. Grandin. Uh, I reached her at her home in Fort Collins, Colorado. We spoke uh, via Zoom, and here's the first portion of our conversation. I just want to read the first uh, line of the book, Temple Grandin. You say, we come into the world without words. So all of us, I guess, start out visual thinkers. Well, actually, one of the studies outlined in the visual thinking book is that children tend to do more visual imagery than adults do. Um, I have a slide that I show to people where I'm trying to train them to look for things that might scare cattle. And it shows a steer looking at a sunbeam on a floor, but it talks about non-slip flooring. It's deliberately a decoy slide. And if I show that to school administrators and I say, uh, raise your hand if you notice the steer was looking at the sunbeam, almost no hands go up. I show that to elementary school children, over half the hands will go up. Hmm. So uh, the, what happens then? We're taught to, to well, be... I think what happens, and most people, language kind of overrides visual thinking. Now, when I first started my work with cattle, I thought everybody thought in photorealistic pictures the way I do. And that's fact, that's called an object visualizer. And I didn't discover until I was in my uh, late 30s that other people did not think in pictures the way I did. And that was a very big shock to me that uh, other people didn't have uh, pictures when they thought about something. Like I'm thinking about, well, I went to the grocery store today. I'm seeing it. The apples were, honey crisp apples were not very nice today. I decided to use a different type of apple. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. How did you discover that? Uh, was there one moment where you discovered, hey, well, I, I think first, differently? The first insight was I would talk to people about how they think. And if I say, think about your own house, most people can visualize it because it's so familiar. But if I ask you something you don't own, that's when you're able to see the difference. And I asked a speech therapist, and that's probably a verbal thinker, to think about a church steeple. How does it come into her mind? And when I say this, I see specific ones, and I can name off where they're at. The speech therapist has got two little lines like this. And that was my first inkling 
that maybe other people didn't think the same way. Hmm. That was in my late thirties would have been in the uh, eighties. Yeah. Was what, how did you feel about that? Was was that, I don't know, a negative or a positive? Well, insight. And then, and then when I wrote thinking in pictures, that was back in 1995, I thought everybody on autism spectrum, a thought in pictures. And uh, I got some reviews on Amazon that made it very plain that that was not true. Well, that made me think. And then I got to talking to a lot of people on the spectrum. And I found this other category of patterns, sort of a mathematical way of thinking when I um, read a book called Exiting Nirvana by Clara Claiborne Parks. And so on the autism spectrum, there's the object visualizer like me, there is the um, mathematical pattern thinker, and then there's the word thinker. And now in my visual thinking book, I've got all kinds of studies that show that object visualization, how I think, and the more mathematical pattern thinker are actually two different types of visual thinking. Mm. And in many studies, they get mixed together uh, against word thinkers, and that's actually wrong. Right, right. And I want to have you talk about those two different kinds of visual thinkers. But first, uh, you, you say that uh, the book grows out of two eureka moments. Uh, you, you write the first of those. You were touring uh, some U.S. poultry and pork processing plants. Could you tell me about that? Well, I went to four places in 2019 that made me realize that we have a serious problem in this country with skill loss. And they were state-of-the-art poultry plant and two state-of-the-art pork plants. And most of the equipment came from Holland. In fact, in the poultry plant, all the equipment came from Holland. Then I went to the Steve Jobs Theater and the roof came from Dubai and the structural glass walls came from Germany and Italy. And then I got to thinking, we're into a serious skill loss issue. Then I went back to all the projects I've worked on where I spent considerable amounts of time out on a construction site. And I noticed a really interesting complementary minds situation. Your degreed engineers, your mathematicians, they do in a big food processing plant, would do boilers, refrigeration, make sure the roof doesn't collapse, power and water. But oftentimes the, the people out in the shop, many of them that had taken just a single welding class, they made all the clever, mechanically clever, complicated equipment. I call that the clever engineering department. And that's where we're losing the skills because some other things have happened in the last 25 years. We've shut down shop classes. So the people I worked with are retiring and not getting replaced. Another big mistake that many companies made was shutting down in-house engineering departments. You know, back in the 80s or in the 90s, the big meat companies, they had big metalworking shops where they invented and built equipment. That was all shut down. Now we're paying for it. But another big concern I have in replacing the people that can do the clever engineering, none of us could do algebra. None of us. I worked with people that might have had a single welding class and then start a shop. I other people um, that may have worked up growing up working on cars and that got them started. But we're losing these skills. And I think it's very, very serious. And I'm kind of doing a little checking when I see people fixing elevators and escalators. I do my gray hair survey. <laughs> and a uh, big airport, great big gigantic airport. I was just in it last week. 
four people had an escalator completely torn apart, you know, three gray hairs and one not gray hair. Mm. And, and I'm seeing more and more of that. But the people that would be good at fixing those escalators are the kids that are now playing video games in the basement with autism diagnosis. Because mm. another thing I did when I went back and I looked through all my jobs is that about 20% of the people that designed equipment, did drafting, laid out entire factories, and invented equipment and patented it with autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD. Not formally diagnosed, but clearly, uh, you know, they would be special ed kids today. Uh, could you tell and me? The, yeah, so go one ahead. of the reasons for doing this book mm -hmm. is I'm very concerned, especially my type of visual thinker, the object visualizer. I wouldn't be able to graduate from high school in California because I still can't do algebra. Never could. And most of the people I worked with couldn't either. Hmm. So w what are we doing then? Are we, we're, I guess we're screening these folks out. We're, we're, we're limiting them, I guess, in our education system. Well, what's happening, you are paying the price for taking out the shop classes. But fortunately, like in Minnesota, they're starting to put them back in. Texas is starting to put them back in. Uh, one of the reasons why Holland was making all the equipment for the poultry plant is that in ninth grade, the kid can either go the university track or go the tech track. And the tech track gets a bit more restraint, a lot more respect than it gets uh, here. Now, out in California, I did a book signing in a school, and I had a very disturbing uh, conversation with the principal. He didn't know what my kind of visual thinking was. He didn't know it existed. And there's kind of the thing when they go, well, we put the stupid kids in shop. Well, let me tell you, the people I worked with on equipment, and these were very smart people, but it's a different kind of intelligence. They just see how mechanical things work. Hmm. What would you like to see schools do differently? What I'd like to see is get all the hands-on classes put back in a school. In fact, uh, just last week, I visited my old elementary school, Dedham Country Day School, and they had a beautiful big wood shop there. They do art, they do ceramics, music, school play. They're doing all the hands-on things. But then you go to some schools in some other areas and they got no hands-on things. You've got kids that grow up, never have used a tool. Also, when I was out in California, I had a teacher come up to me that um, said that one mom wouldn't let her kids have markers or paints because they were just too messy. We've got kids growing up today that don't do any practical things. I had a student in my class last year who had never used a ruler to measure anything. Hmm. I think that's a problem. Hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the uh, diagnostic criteria for autism. We have the autism spectrum disorder. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, This the changes in how we diagnose? Well, one of the problems is it's made the spectrum so broad. So at one end of the spectrum, you got Einstein had no speech until age three. Elon Musk has announced he's on the spectrum. In fact, I thought he was on the spectrum when I read Ashley Vance's book years ago about him. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got individuals with very, very high needs, can't dress themselves, and it's called with the same name. From the standpoint of what the person needs, that makes it very, very difficult. And I'm seeing too many smart kids, you know, shunted into classes where they're going to just go nowhere. And, and I gave a talk yesterday at the Iowa Autism Society meeting, and I used the same slides I'm using with corporations. 
I gave a talk recently with U.S. Steel, United Airlines, IBM Computers, uh, um, Standard & Poor's, a major bank, uh, oil company. And the thing I discuss is they need to be concerned about the skill loss. They need that person that can't do algebra to keep that steel mill running. Uh, in September, I went out to Big Feed Yard in Nebraska, and they're about ready to pull their hair out because they can't find somebody to, to uh, service their feed mill. That is a problem. Hmm. You talk about, um, uh, you know, kids diagnosed somewhere on the spectrum. They're, I guess they're, I don't know what the word would be, coddled. They're, they're not taught life skills. Well, I'm, I'm very concerned that a lot of parents get totally locked into the label. I'm seeing lots of fully verbal teenagers who have never gone in the store by themselves and shopped. They're not learning money. I mean, these are things that, that I was taught, not learning laundry, just basic life skills, riding a bus, uh, just all of the basic skills. They're not learning them. The, the parents are getting stuck on the label and doing everything for them. And it's a big problem. And I know people that own very large metal fabrication shops and they're selling specialized equipment all around the world about stutterer, dyslexic, probably autistic, took a single welding class and that got his business started. See, the problem is the small shops aren't forming. So what's happening right now, like we need to get some repairs on some of my equipment, the one shop that's left is charging 10 times the price it should be. That's happening right now. That's serious. Mm. And, and the large, uh, I have to know the most about meatpacking plants, but 20 years ago, these uh, all these places had their own shops. They could fix stuff. They could build stuff. They've all lost, many of them have lost their in-house ability to fix things. And uh, it's a combination of, you know, kind of uh, phasing out the in-house engineering as the people retired out. And that made money in the short run, but now it's coming back to bite them. And the car industry's made some of the same mistakes. Mm. Uh, you said, that this really struck me, you said it's possible that the most important thing my mother did for me was not to see herself primarily as the mom of a disabled child. Um, well, she um, she always had a really good sense of what I could do. And she could see I was very good at art, and she always encouraged me on my art always always encourage that um, and i would just draw the same horse's head over again she said well, let's draw the whole horse let's draw the stable you know take that art ability and broaden it so it wouldn't be so fixated and and i have a whole chapter in the visual thinking about you know educational um, issues in schools um and and there's a lot of variation with the different states and some people are realizing they've got to put this back in. And when I visited my old elementary school, you know, one of the teachers there said we're kind of a throwback to the 50s. And I said, well, there's a lot of good things that went on in the 50s in education. Hmm. You you write that uh, genius requires not only intelligence and creativity, but divergent thinking as well. You you talk about Thomas Edison, Michelangelo, Alan Turing, <laughs> Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Albert Einstein. Uh, all of well, whom... the thing is, I'm I'm an associational thinker. Word thinkers are very linear, top-down, big general principles. You see, my mind works bottom-up. 
I take specific examples to make concepts. You know, let's just take something as simple as learning that a dog wasn't a cat. When I was little, I sorted them by size because we didn't have any small dogs in the neighborhood. But then when the neighbors got a dachshund, I could no longer use size as a variable to sort them. I had to use some other feature that, that a dachshund shared with other dogs, like barking, for example. Hmm. You see, it's bottom-up yeah. thing, specific examples. Also, the same way that computers think. Computers think the same way. I believe you did. You said you didn't speak till you were three. No, I got about age four. About age four. Speaking. Yeah. And then at age five, I was still slow to respond. You know, when you're teaching these little kids to speak, uh, give them time to respond. Their mm -hmm. brain's sort of like a slow internet connection. You got to give it time to respond. Yeah. And you you wrote in the previous memoir. Uh, you, you had a you know, really hard time that, you know, kids can be cruel. You were, you were a little different. Um, well, the only places I was not bullied and teased was um, sh friends who shared interests. Hmm. High school was the worst part of my life, but horses and model rockets and electronics, those are places where I had friends who shared interests. And, and the people that, um, you know, they've been successful in business. A, a lot of them have their own businesses and they got very good at, building specialized stuff. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking with Temple Grandin, of course, a pioneer in improving the welfare of farm animals, an outspoken advocate for the autism community as well, author of several books, and the latest is called Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. We'll uh, have more with Temple Grandin following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Temple Grandin today. She's author of uh, many books, including uh, her uh, wonderful memoir, Thinking in Pictures, which became an HBO movie starring Claire Danes. Uh, Temple Grandin is professor of animal science at Colorado State University, uh, University, author of several books. The latest is called Visual Thinking. And uh, in the book, uh, she says, uh, world increasingly geared to the verbal tends to sideline visual thinkers screening them out at school and passing them over in the workplace. And she says, rather than waste their singular gifts, uh, we should uh, have new approaches to it, educating, parenting, employing, and collaborating with visual thinkers. Here's more of my conversation, uh, recent conversation with Temple Grandin. Tell me about how you got involved with, with, with animals. Of course, you, you build a, a very distinguished career. There. Well, it all started out with exposure. I got exposed to cattle as a teenager. It's that simple. Mm. And I, I'm a big believer in getting young students uh, exposed to lots of different things. Say, when I was a little kid, I was doing painting and I was doing doing uh, woodworking and sewing and music. I wasn't so good in, in playing a musical instrument, but I was exposed to that. School play, I didn't care about acting, but I liked making costumes for the school play. But I think it's important to expose kids to lots of different things. And then they can find out what they like. They can also find out what they do not want to do, too. But let's look at Michelangelo. He was a 12-year-old dropout out of school, running around all the churches. Every church was commissioning art at the time. So he was seeing that. That's exposure. Grew up with stone-cutting tools. That's exposure. Then mentoring. Starts out with exposure, then mentoring. 
and I have a ch- I have a chapter in the, in in the visual thinking book that um, you know goes over all the studies, um, and I have a chapter on skill loss. Another place where I have a chapter is on disasters, hmm. and the mathematically inclined engineer calculates risk. The visual thinker can see risk. There's a difference, and you need both. And let's take Fukushima, uh, the um, reactor burning up there, Fukushima. The engineers, the mathematicians, did a great job of making it earthquake-proof, and it shook, and it shook, and it shook, and it shook, and it was fine. But they didn't visualize water flooding the site and drowning the electric emergency cooling pump. Now, that's seeing risk. Mm -hmm. Simple watertight doors would have saved it. I also um, uh, wrote about a program called Marine Innovation Boot Camp. And in this uh, situation, they have a bunch of Marines, a lot of truck drivers, and then they also have some university-trained engineers give them a pile of junk and tell them to make a vehicle out of it. And the truck drivers are a lot better at kind of MacGyvering a vehicle together than the degreed engineers. You see, this is where you need both kinds of minds working together. Because going back to the food processing plant, you need both types of engineering in it. Now, we still know how to do the degree engineering part, but we're importing the clever engineering department over in 100 shipping containers for this one poultry plant. Now, that's a problem. So you, you talk about uh, the, the teams need all sorts of thinkers, including visual we thinkers. Need them. We yeah. need them. Another yeah. thing on the book, on the visual thinking book, um, I'm associational in how I think. My writing's kind of jumbled. It doesn't flow very well. So I would write the rough draft of every chapter. Then Betsy Lerner, my co-author, totally verbal, totally opposite the way I think. She'd smooth them all out. You see, that's complementary minds working together. That's really important. Hmm. You give a, a really interesting example uh, in the book, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. Well, there's, um, you know, some people are good at the words, other people are good at the, at the music. You see, and if you recognize those different skills, then you can, you can work together. Mm-hmm. We, we really do need all the different kinds of thinkers. And I'm very concerned about a lot of talent um, ending up in the basement playing video games, and they're not getting wonderful jobs in the video game industry. I wouldn't be critical if they were going in to get great programming jobs and things like that. One of the ways to get them off the video games is car mechanics. Mm. And they find that's more interesting than the video games. Yeah. I'm very concerned about the skill loss issue. We need these clever kinds of minds that can't do algebra uh, for all kinds of uh, repairs and, and inventing stuff like elevators. Oh, most of the elevators now are coming from Europe now. Mm-hmm. Not making those either. I've been checking out nameplates on elevators in places uh-huh. I know. In the old days, they were all Otis that came from here. And and you're saying you you take the uh, I don't know what you call it the the gray hairs test or where are we? It sounds well, what like I'm we're doing getting. Is, yeah. What I'm doing is I'm looking at. I, I'm kind of getting an idea when I look at you know people fixing elevators or um, escalators is how many young people are coming into it. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm okay. There was uh, four people working on an escalator at an airport, and there was only one person that did not have gray hair. Mm-hmm. And what so it's going to be a big problem if these people retire out. And I've been going on some pretty dicey elevators recently. Hmm. Um, I uh, went on one big hotel in September, and a bellhop was on there. He goes, oh, yeah, it skips this floor. We have to catch that floor on the way down. Well, that's messed up. It was a major fancy hotel. You also, in the book, discuss savants. Can you talk a little bit about savants, you know, extreme skills in certain areas. You know, most people that have autism are not savants. I am not a savant. You know, savants can hear a song once and play it, you know, do all kinds of numerical uh, calculations in their head, which I definitely cannot do. And that's a small subset of the, of the autism spectrum. But there's lots of people on the autism spectrum that are good at math. So if you have a little third grader that's good at math, one of the mistakes that's made is forcing them to do it the verbal way in sequential steps. That's not how, the, not how these kids think. They just see the pattern and see the answer. Let them do it that way. And then maybe that third grade student needs a high school math book. That's the kid that needs an algebra book out of the attic that's all numbers. He's just going to eat that up. I might use that book for a doorstop. Mm. Yeah, uh, right. But um, <laughs> uh, move the kid ahead in math. Mm-hmm. And I see people get locked into the label. Like you might have a kid that's really good at math and both parents are computer programmers, but they got so locked into the label they didn't think teach their kid programming. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Now, there's a danger being locked in the label, right? You write that. Oh, I think it's yeah. bad. Yeah. I think it's yeah. bad because then the kid is just going absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. And some of the most fun things I ever did was figuring out how to build stuff and sitting around talking to other people about trying to invent stuff and trying to figure out how to build stuff. That's the most fun stuff I ever did. You write that you you think Einstein, for example, might have landed in an autism program today. Well, I think if Einstein was a young child today, he would probably land in an autism program. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's where most kids that don't speak go. You know, if you're, if you're three years old and not speaking, that's where you're going to land. Mm-hmm. You could argue about whether or not he's autistic, but he'd be in an autism program today. I want to ask a, a little bit about uh, animals. Uh, you, you, of course, you know that's a, a big area of your study. Um, you, you write that there are there are a lot of things we can learn as humans from animals and how they think. What well, what in the, the last things? chapter of the book of uh, visual thinking book is on animal consciousness, and people are still arguing about that. And to me, as a visual thinker, I always thought it was ridiculous <coughs> to say that dog is not conscious. But I think some of this gets down to verbal thinking versus more sensory-based thinking. An animal lives in a total sensory-based world. Now, if you think just in words, you might have a hard time understanding how a dog could think. But since I think in pictures, um, it's obvious to me how a dog would think. Now, we know that a dog's nose is 100 times more powerful than a person's. And I just read a new study that was done at Cornell University where they found that there's a big internet trunk line between a dog's nose and the visual cortex. And I'm going, smell pictures? Wow, trippy. I'm trying to now imagine how the dog can put his nose all around different ways and get a, a three-dimensional smell picture of something. <laughs> He's probably capable of doing it. 
that uh, that study's not in the book because it was published after the book went to the printers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is kind of trippy. That's um, very, very trippy, yeah. but it gets down to sensory-based thinking versus word-based thinking. And when it comes to emotions, that's where, you know, all mammals are pretty similar, including people. You know, the main difference is we got a gigantic computer sitting up here that the dog doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Raw computer power yeah. sitting up here on top. We've got it. There have been some changes. You you say in your early scientific papers you were you weren't allowed to use the word fear in relation oh, to Oh no, like in my papers I wrote in the early nineties, I've got a paper where I couldn't say that cattle got fear had fearful behavior. I had to write they had agitated behavior. The reviewers made me take the fear word out. And this is where we kind of get silos in science because neuroscience researchers had been using the fear word for years, you know, in studies done on rats and mice and you know and other animals. But it was only in about the 90s they really started getting it into the animal science literature. And now it's it's totally acceptable now, the use of fear word. Mm -hmm. you, I was reading an interview you gave. You, you say uh, you you get angry seeing cattle come into slaughterhouses lame. You'd say we need to give them positive emotions. And it, well, we need to be be raising cattle in such a way that they don't get lame. And I'm, I've done a lot of work on animal welfare auditing. And back in 1999, I was hired by McDonald's and then later by Wendy's and Burger King to implement animal welfare auditing. And I came up with a very, very simple scoring system for auditing animal welfare. And when you have big companies like McDonald's enforcing this, you get huge change. And in most of the cases at the slaughter plants, they can be fixed with a repairs, management, non-slip flooring. You know, really simple things. And so then after 1999, around 2005, I was really happy. Oh, everything was working great. Then we slowly started getting problems with more stuff wrong with cattle. Lameness, stiffness. Um, uh, they'll make getting these steers really big, heart failure. And and uh, you've got to raise an animal in such a way you're not going to have a problem with walking. You know, and then lameness can be caused by many different things. That's not okay. And we've got to give that animal a life worth living. And if he's sore and lame, that's probably not going to be very good on a, worth, a life worth living. And the newer concepts now in animal welfare is preventing uh, uh, sufferings not sufficient. The animal also has to have positive emotions. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have positive emotions if they're lame. Yeah, because that hurts. Uh, just a, a one more question on visual thinking. What what would you most uh, have want people to learn from from the book about visual thinkers? Well, the first thing I want people to learn is that they exist, because I talked to this headmaster in California during the book tour, and he was kind of flabbergasted about my kind of thinking, and he just kept asking me all these questions. Um, about thinking and the school he was running was real heavy on math. I probably wouldn't be able to graduate from that school. And uh, he left to know that different kinds of thinking exist. I'm very concerned about skill loss issue. We have a huge shortage of skilled trades and people that can build things. We've got people growing up today totally removed from the world of the practical. Never use tools. They're going to make policy about important stuff. And it all gets too abstract. 
during the book tour, I was exposed to some interesting books. And at one of the places I went to, they gave me the office of a political science professor for a green room. And it was really, and the, these books, I looked at some, all abstract stuff. It, it was not, it was not um, about issues. It was not right or left. Abstract theory about political systems. I'm going, I don't even understand this stuff. Then I stayed in this hotel in Evanston, Illinois, called The Graduate. And uh, you got your keys were 1930s student ID cards. <laughs> and then the room had the kids' textbooks in it. And I looked at an old electrical engineering book from the 30s and an old Western literature book. And, you know, Shakespeare, Plato, Aristotle, you know, the stuff you read in Western literature. But the forward was very interesting, straightforward. They said there's a lot of nonsense written about the Greeks. And you got to remember that these um, writers were writing in, the, in how they wrote at the time. You know, some of the stuff is translated. And then the electrical engineering book, much more applied. Had a lot of math in it, but it showed this part of a generator, and this is the math. Much more applied. And I took some pictures of the electrical engineering book, and I'm kicking myself. I didn't photograph the title page of the literature book because it didn't have all this abstract theory junk about liter literature. The preface was so straightforward. Well, of course, back then, a lot more visual thinkers were around. And you got to remember, when the patent office started, all of the inventions were mechanical devices. It would have been the clever engineering department when you think grain harvesting equipment, steamboats, uh, sewing machines. Those are all the clever engineering department. Mm -hmm. And so the problem was skill loss. And in the very first uh, part of the book, I talk about my trip and going to those four places and realizing we have a problem. Uh, so final question for me, not, not necessarily related to the book, uh, is, is, there, is, there, is there a paper you've read recently? Is there science that's got you excited? Well, I got pretty excited about the dog um, um, trunk line to the visual cortex. I thought that was a pretty cool paper. And I read a lot of science magazines, and they had a picture of the brain scan from the dog using the latest um, you know, high-definition tensor imaging. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I put it in my, my, my animal behavior lecture. Yeah, yeah. Also, I got another study that my student did I like. Uh, why does a horse sometimes spook? And you've got to remember that if this staple, let's say the staple is 10 feet long, it looks totally different this way than this way. So what we did was get a children's play set, a little that had a slide and a swing on it for toddler, walked horses by it till they no longer reacted. And then when you rotated it 90 degrees, it became a new object. Hmm. You see, we'd look at it and go, yeah, that's a kid's play toy. But it looks totally different when it's rotated. And that was some work done by my student, Megan Corgan. And I really like that paper because that really shows visual thinking. Mm -hmm. Understanding why horses spook. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you see, what you got to do is show them all sides of stuff. Think about a car. It looks very different from the front and from the side. Well, uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Temple Grand. I appreciate it so much. Okay. Thank all you. Right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for having me.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I reached Temple Grandin from her home in Fort Collins, Colorado. This past Saturday, we spoke via Zoom. Her latest book is called Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. And that's out now. She's author of several other books as well, of course. And she's professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Uh, following a break, we'll have more with Temple Grandin. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have a little bit of uh, extra time here, and we're going to uh, fill that time reaching back into the archives from 2012. Uh, here's a portion of an interview that uh, Carrie Bringhurst had with uh, Temple Grandin. I spoke with Dr. Grandin about what it was like growing up with autism and some of the challenges that have to do with sensory perception disorder. I can remember lots of things. What were some of the things that maybe you couldn't tolerate? I can remember the frustration of not being able to talk. That was a horrible frustration. And I can remember uh, when the school bell went off, it hurt my ears like a dentist drill hitting a nerve. Uh, scratchy clothes were just like sandpaper against my nerves. Uh, I can remember a whole lot of different things. And the things about sensory issues is they're very variable. One child may have severe sound sensitivity. Another child doesn't. One child may have problems with the flicker of fluorescent lights bothering them, and another child is fine with fluorescent lights. It's very, very variable. And I think one area where there needs to be a lot of research is the sensory problems. And sensory problems are not limited just to autism. You can have it along with ADHD or with dyslexia or learning problems. Uh, Many, many um, kinds of disorders have sensory problems. How did you deal with that in your growing up years? Were your parents aware that 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 those types of things bothered you? And how about in the school environment? Well, fortunately, I was in an old-fashioned little small school, an elementary school, where that is only the school bell was the only loud, noisy thing, and I just made sure that I stayed away from it. But, but for some individuals, sensory issues can be very debilitating. They can range from a nuisance to being so bad that a person can't tolerate a normal restaurant or office environment. And how about for you now as an adult? Did you just learn to cope with some of these things? Well, the hearing sensitivity did get better. It is possible sometimes to desensitize these things. And it's really important that the child initiate the sound. You know, like maybe you gradually get closer and closer to the, to the school bell. You know, there are some individuals who can't tolerate going in the big supermarket. So you let them control how much time they're in the, in the supermarket. Uh, the, one of the worst problems is the fluorescent light flickering. And there's simple things you can do for that. You can uh, put the kid's desk over by a window. You can uh, try printing the homework on different pastel papers, like, you know, white, blue, gray, white, uh, lavender. Uh, sometimes uh, colored glasses help. Uh, make sure you use either tablet computers or laptops because those are the only kinds of screens that don't flicker. Did you ever find yourself becoming obsessed with uh, some of the items that initially you could not tolerate? Well, the thing is, autistic kids tend to get obsessed with things. And what you want to do with obsessions is use the motivation of that obsession. Like if the kid likes trains, let's teach reading with trains. Let's teach mathematics with trains. The other thing is, kids on the spectrum have uneven skills. They'll be good at one thing and bad at something else. And I was really good at art, and everybody worked to encourage um, my ability in art. Another kid, it may be mathematics. And you may, he may need to be, you know, five grades ahead in mathematics, but he may need special education and reading. 
And then you've got the kids that are the word thinkers. These are the ones that like history. Build on the strength because you got to start thinking about what are they going to do when they grow up? And we're not doing anywhere near enough on jobs. And when kids get to middle school, they need to start uh, uh, getting some uh, job skills, like walking dogs, uh, fixing computers for people, things like that. Did you have these uh, skills taught to you when you were younger growing up, or are these things you've just come to recognize as you've... Well, you know, my school, you know, we had art, we had wood shop, we had sewing, we had cooking classes. And, you know, today a lot of schools have taken these uh, hands-on classes out, and I think it's just terrible because there's a lot of kids that get a lot of different kinds of labels, and they may excel in art and music. Uh, they may be really good at mechanical things. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, kids where, you know, the auto shop or the shop uh, teacher got them turned around, but the schools are getting rid of those classes. And there's a real need right now for skilled trades. And some of the kids that are dyslexic or ADHD or mildly Asperger, they'd be great at skilled trades. What would you suggest? Um, I know the obvious is more money should be put into the education system. Is there something else parents could be doing that? Um, well, maybe... one of the things we ought to be doing is tapping into a lot of the retirees that are out there. They're probably getting sick of being out in the golf course all the time. And, you know, retired engineers, uh, retired musicians, they could mentor some of these kids because I was turned around by my science teacher. I was goofing around in high school. I wasn't interested in studying. But my science teacher got me interested in studying. Oftentimes, with a lot of kids that are kind of quirky and different, there's a teacher that serves as a mentor that helps get kids turned around. And I think there'd be a lot of retirees out there that might get interested in mentoring a kid. You mentioned you were so interested in art, and I wondered where this change came along, where you went from um, being interested, and maybe you still are interested in art, but you've definitely taken on a science aspect to your research with animals. Well, that's right, but art also is very much involved because my design work uses my art skills. Uh, you know, art skills are the basis of being an industrial designer. The kind of work that I did with livestock was basically industrial design and architecture, and that uses art skills. So you are much more into the structural aspect of art. Do you find yourself as a creative artist as well? No, I'm more of the kind of engineering side of art, but I mean, I've I like, uh, you know, drawing, doing drawing things. I like designing stuff. Um, and also, I'm really, really interested in animal behavior, and I'm a visual thinker. And so I, in my books, uh, Thinking in Pictures and Animals in Translation, I talked about um, how an animal is a sensory-based thinker. You know, I think in pictures. Well, that's going to be more like how cattle and dogs are going to think. Of course, dogs are going to think in smells, too. You seem to have a, a great sense of your own strengths, and you said that educators helped bring that out in you. What can we do to help our children, say if we have a child with autism, to, to help them recognize their strengths? Well, autism is a very big spectrum, and you're going to go all the way from Einstein, who didn't talk until he was age four, to Steve Jobs, who's probably on the spectrum. I've been reading all the stuff about him, half a Silicon Valley. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that are going to remain nonverbal. It's a continuous trait. When does quirky and geeky become a mild autism or Asperger's? There's no black and white dividing line. And so, first of all, help your children. I've got to know, like, well, how old a child. If it's a two-year-old, I want him in getting at least 20 hours a week of one-to-one instruction with an effective teacher, teaching words, teaching turn-taking. You know, if it's a bored teenager on the spectrum, we'll try to get him interested in something that can start turning into a career. I had somebody describe to me um, you as being the modern-day Helen Keller. You have such insight. 
Well, what I've tried to do is, is combine my own experiences with a lot of knowledge of science, and I do lots and lots and lots of reading. But what we've got to do is we've got to help people to develop their potential because autism is a very big spectrum. And what worries me today, especially on the higher end of the spectrum, is I'm seeing too many kids where their hang-up is autism. They want to tell me about their autism instead of telling me that they like dogs or they like art or they like mathematics or maybe they like history. And so you see that as a drawback. Why is that happening? Or what can we do to change that behavior in our kids with autism? Well, we need to, we need to encourage interests. And I think things like taking the hands-on classes out of the school, I think mm-hmm. it's just an absolute uh, disaster. Right now I'm at the uh, thing called the AME meeting, American Manufacturing Excellence. It's a meeting on, on, of uh, manufacturers. Just been to two keynote speeches and, and really concerned that um, you know, America's not manufacturing things anymore. And a lot of the people they can make great products now get labeled with Asperger, ADHD, or dyslexia, and they're kind of going down a handicapped route instead of running the next Silicon Valley company or solving the energy crisis. See, the problem you've got in autism is at one end of the, of the spectrum, you've got Einstein or Steve Jobs, and at the other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody that's not going to go to college and probably isn't going to be able to work. Uh, and educators have a hard time dealing with the full breadth of that spectrum. They know what to do with the more severe kids, but they don't know what to do with the geeky kind of nerdy kids that could uh, be really good at things like uh, manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So we need to start thinking that when kids get into middle school, any of these kids that are labeled with any kind of label, we need to start thinking about what are they going to do when they grow up? If they're good at art, you know, then they can do something that uses that ability. If they're good at um, mathematics, they'd be good at computer programming or engineering. Then there's others that are very good at writing. We've got to start We've got to start teaching kids job skills. I'm seeing too many kids that aren't learning just regular skills like shopping, shaking hands, uh, learning how to take turns, turn-taking. I was taught that with board games when I was very young. That is a portion of an interview uh, Temple Grand gave to uh, our own Carrie Bringhurst from 2012. And our thanks to uh, Temple Grandin for our recent interview with her. Uh, we aired previously in the program. We'll go out as we always do on uh, a Thursday with Leo T. and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T. looking up and out in the wee hours of November 8th. Amongst those who are able to see the sky early on Election Day and see the last total eclipse of 2022 is our correspondent near Capitol Reef, Larry Harper, or Dr. D. The eclipse was spectacular and breathtaking. Perfect, clear-viewing skies and 43 degrees. I slept on the deck above the pod in my home in Torrey, watching from my warm sleeping bag. Wow, the ideal. And a beautiful sunrise to boot, with the clouds starting to form having waited until the eclipse was over. The whole experience, the sky changing from bright full moon brightness to dark moonless and millions of stars coming out back to bright again. The total eclipse experience to include the whole sky. To the wonder of observers, earlier this month, a solar storm cracked the Earth's electromagnetic field over Norway, revealing rare pink auroras. Live science reports that the breach allowed highly energetic solar particles to penetrate deeper into the atmosphere than normal, triggering the unusual colored lights. A witness to this event, November 3rd, a Northern Lights tour guide, wouldn't that be fun, had this to say. These were the strongest pink auroras that he has seen in more of a decade of leading tours. It was a humbling experience. Interestingly enough, this sky watcher has seen a few auroras in Wyoming and Montana. 
Both of those covered the whole sky, and it was amazing. The dance of charged energy shifts and moves around. In Wyoming, I saw red and green, and in Montana, along with the pelican seagulls and other shorebirds having a party, red to purple to green to other shade. You can see the photo from the Norway Adventure Company, Greenlander Tromso, on the Skywatcher Facebook page. And the Artemis One moon launch has been delayed from November 14th to the 16th due to another tropical storm, this one Nicole, coming in. But this time NASA will let the Artemis weather the storm at the launch pad instead of going into the big garage known as the Vehicle Assembly Building. Now we're keeping the faith for hanging on desperately to democracy in the United States and a successful rocket launch to the moon and a 24-day shakedown cruise. And in the space program that led up to the present, let's take the time warp machine back to the 1960s. During the mid-1960s, NASA evolved their space program from the early Mercury shots with one astronaut to the Gemini program with two astronauts. Along with continuing to work on orbital mechanics, thrusters, and inventing and designing the whole idea of rockets to the moon, the Gemini program was designed to test the ability of astronauts to maneuver their spacecraft by means of manual control and helped develop the techniques for orbital rendezvous and docking with the target vehicle. Exercises that were vital to the Apollo Moon Program, also giving NASA engineers an opportunity to improve environmental control and electrical power systems. During the Gemini 4 mission, launched June 3, 1965, astronaut Edward H. White performed the first American spacewalk, maneuvering outside the spacecraft for 20 minutes and learning how to function in space. That was a continuing saga, it wasn't just uh, cut and dry. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago on Gemini 4, James McDivitt snapped amazing photos with his Hasselblad camera of Edward White's space walks against the backdrop of the beautiful Earth. And Gemini 5 in 1965, August 21st, completed an eight-day mission, the longest space flight undertaken up to that time. It was an amazing adventure as the two rockets and spacecraft were launched separately, learned how to put theory into practice by docking in space. And Gemini 12 in November of 1966, the last in the series, made the automatically controlled re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. And although the war in Vietnam was building, and of course other conflicts across the globe, this was an exciting time with the civil rights movement being fought as well as the war in Vietnam. And in this vein, this reporter believes maybe we should honor the veterans of the civil rights movement as well as the military ones. Many lost their lives for the cause of improving conditions for all peoples on earth. And as a young boy, this was an exciting time to be alive. Here's to the women and men of these space programs and to all of us here on the good planet Earth. So keep looking up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR, with translator station statewide and streaming live at upr.org.